For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. February 28, 1953. Two scientists walk into a bar. It's not a joke. This really happened. It's a pub in Cambridge, England, called The Eagle. It opened in the 1600s. World War II servicemen wrote their names on the ceiling there while they were having a pint. And in the 50s, it has become the hangout spot for scientists working at the nearby Cavendish Laboratory. That day in February, around lunchtime, James Watson and Francis Crick burst into The Eagle. Crick yells out, We have found the secret of life. Watson tells that story in a book he wrote called The Double Helix. And this moment marks the end of a scientific race to find the structure of DNA. That morning, while Watson was sitting at his desk, he made the final leap of insight and put together the now famous double helix. This story, it's kind of a classic way we imagine a scientific discovery. Guy sits down, has a vision, suddenly understands how life works. But actually, there was someone else involved. A female scientist whose work was key. Rosalind Franklin. Watson and Crick, these guys... They get the Nobel Prize and most of the credit for this discovery. But there is more than just plain old sexism at play here. This has to do with the way we define discovery in the first place. You rarely have that mythological figure of the individual scientist coming up with this idea. That just doesn't really exist. I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today... The discovery of DNA's double helix structure. Why didn't Franklin get the credit? And what does discovery actually mean? Dr. Michelle Gibbons told us the story of Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin. She recently published an article about this in the journal Philosophy of Science, which was really about the nature of discovery, what it is, and how we think about it. Dr. Gibbons told us that back in the early 1950s, scientists had only recently figured out that DNA was worth studying. So it was around the 1940s or so that people began to realize that DNA was the genetic material that it carries hereditary information. So people within science started to really feel like this was important. And so a few different labs started working really hard on the question of what is the structure of DNA and trying to figure it out. Because if you know how a molecule is built, you can better understand how it does what it does. In this case, pass on information about how to basically build a human being. 
DNA carries genes, and genes influence everything about us. How tall we are, what diseases we get, a lot of people think even our personalities. So in the early 1950s, there was a race happening to figure out the structure of DNA. There was a guy out in California, Linus Pauling, who seemed like he might be the one to do it. He just figured out some important stuff about protein structures. And then there were two labs in England. The first was at King's College. So you had Maurice Wilkins. He was the one who was probably working on it the earliest. He's looking at DNA with a technique called X-ray crystallography. You basically shoot X-rays at crystallized DNA and then look at the shadows that the DNA casts and work backwards to figure out what shape made those shadows. It's really time-consuming, but if you're good at it, it lets you see stuff that otherwise can't be seen. In 1951, a young crystallographer joins Wilkins in his lab, Rosalind Franklin. She's not the only female scientist at King's College, but female scientists are still relatively rare. And she and Wilkins get off on the wrong foot. She came in under the assumption that she would have a more independent place in the lab, and Wilkins was under the impression that she would kind of be more working underneath him or under his direction. And then in addition to that, the two kind of just didn't really hit it off in terms of their personalities, didn't work well together. In fact, one of Franklin's friends later called it hate at first sight. Various descriptions present Franklin as being kind of headstrong and strong-willed, and that Wilkins had a hard time. He was a kind of meek-mannered. It seems that Wilkins was a little bit intimidated by Franklin. The two of them would never have a good working relationship. Meanwhile, nearby at Cambridge University's Cavendish Labs, another pair of scientists was just beginning their partnership. 23-year-old James Watson, an American biologist and zoologist from Chicago, had teamed up with a British physicist named Francis Crick. Crick was 12 years older than Watson, but the two of them hit it off immediately, partly because they were both obsessed with solving the structure of DNA. And they were going about it a different way from the King's College people. No X-ray crystal pictures. They were using this model-building technique, whereas Wilkins and Franklin were doing a lot of work down in a basement with all of this imaging equipment, getting little fine strands of DNA that they could get these images off. Watson and Crick weren't working hands-on with the stuff of DNA in the same way. They were using the speculative method, taking what was known about DNA to try to come up with a model that could make all of those pieces fit together. But they actually worked with like pieces of metal and wire to create their models. Watson later compares these models to the toys that preschool kids would play with. He and Crick are looking at all the pieces and trying to imagine their way to DNA. Wilkins and Franklin are trying to actually see it. Though they're using different methods, these two labs did collaborate. In fact, the three guys, Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, were kind of pals. How did everyone feel about Franklin? It sounds like she's sort of the new kid on the block. A lot of what's become really well-known and that people talk about the most in relation to her experiences in that lab are the things that Watson wrote about her in his Double Helix book. 
In that book, published in 1968, Watson writes about Rosalind Franklin. He calls her Rosie. He writes that she would have been pretty if she took an interest in clothes, that she could be helpful if only she would keep her emotions under control. And he writes, quote, the best home for a feminist is another person's. He later added an epilogue that kind of took some of it back. He said that he was wrong about her as both a scientist and a person, that he now thinks her work was important and she was much nicer than he made her seem. In that epilogue, he calls her Rosalind, not Rosie. So it's pretty clear that at the time, there were bad vibes around Franklin. Watson, at least, did not like her. But he was paying attention to her research. In 1951 he attended a talk Franklin gave on some of her findings. But there are some reports that they didn't take very good notes when they were at that research presentation. But so they came up with this model in 1951, uh, the, you know, model of the structure, and they showed it to Franklin. She said she immediately knew their model was completely wrong and told them so. It had three strands instead of two. It was like bulgy. The chemical bonds didn't make sense. It was a mess. It was so wrong that they were, by the director of their lab, told at that point not to work on DNA anymore. And so they stopped working on DNA for a while. But then there was a sense that Pauling out in California was going to get there first, and they wanted to get there before him. So, afraid that this other guy might beat them, Watson and Crick go back to building models in their lab. Wilkins and Franklin are trying to get better and better pictures of DNA. And Watson, at least at first, he looks down on crystallography. He thinks of it as labor rather than real science. Like, if Watson and Crick are master painters, then Franklin is making their brushes. But he still wants to see her data. Watson and Crick, they want those images too. They just don't want to be the ones creating them because the more information they can get, the better they can do their modeling. So let's talk about 1953. How do Watson and Crick finally get to this famous eureka moment? So everybody's making progress. But Franklin is not sharing her data with Watson and Crick. Then... Watson took a visit to their lab at King's College. Franklin was not there. And Wilkins pulled out this great image that she had, Photograph 51, the one that is one of the iconic images in science. This picture has a really clear X shape in the middle of it, a close-up of the twisting double helix that is now so iconic. I love reading about descriptions of this picture. It's described as just stunning and beautiful. And I'm not a crystallographer, but apparently if you're a crystallographer, it just screams DNA structure to you. And so when Watson saw it, he has this really famous line from the double helix. He saw photograph 51 and he said, the instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race because he could just see so clearly from the image the double helical structure of DNA. Watson takes the train home, his mind buzzing with this photograph. He and Crick go back to their models with this new, crucial image to help. They spend about a month working on a new version of the structure. They get most of it, but they have to figure out how the nitrogen bases fit together in the middle. And on the morning of February 28, 1953, Watson comes into the office. He's playing around with those model pieces, and he suddenly realizes 
If he arranges them a certain way, in pairs, it all makes sense. It fits with all the known data about DNA. Crick comes in, Watson shows him, and they can both see it. The now famous double helix. They think, it's so beautiful, it just has to be right. That's when they burst into the eagle, yelling about the secret of life. Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, the three guys, later got the Nobel Prize for these findings. They did not mention Franklin in their speeches. By the time the award was given, she had died of ovarian cancer. She was only 37. The Nobel Prize could go to a maximum of three people working on one project, and it was usually not awarded posthumously. But Franklin's exclusion still stings. Because these three men get the credit and the one woman involved doesn't, even though her photograph played such a pivotal role. A lot of questions have come up around photograph 51. Wilkins later says, maybe I should have asked Franklin before showing it to these guys. And Watson and Crick actually had some other data of Franklin's. They got it through a friend and she didn't know that they were using it. Now, it is true that Franklin didn't make that final leap of insight. But in theory, she could have. And Watson and Crick relied on her work without her permission to make the famous discovery. Dr. Gibbons told us, This isn't just about gender, though. It also has to do with the way we define discovery. And there's been this long, dominant tradition of thinking about discovery as this moment of insight, where you have this kind of revelation, this eureka moment, this aha moment. But I think that that way of thinking about discovery makes it difficult to acknowledge other kinds of work as discovery. I'd actually used that phrase, eureka moment, earlier in our interview to talk about Watson and Crick. Dr. Gibbons told me she thinks there are two kinds of discovery. One comes from these big moments of insight in your brain, like the one Watson had sitting at that desk in late February. That is real. But then there's another kind, the Rosalind Franklin kind. It's not so much about this moment of insight, but it's about this making visible or making sensible something that is not otherwise visible for us. And so I think that an expanded sense of discovery that encompasses both, both the insight and the ways in which you can use technology to make something appear, that's a different form of discovery, but discovery nonetheless. Franklin's work didn't involve these big flights of insight and inspiration. She was down in the real world, trying to get a good look at this thing inside ourselves. And Dr. Kevin said Franklin may have gone that route partly because she was a woman in a male-dominated field. Outsiders have to tread carefully. I mean, I can't know what Rosalind Franklin was thinking, but I think it's at least possible that when you're more vulnerable or when when your place is less certain, you're less able or willing to make a risky move. Like the unveiling of that first bulgy DNA model in 1951, Dr. Gibbons thinks that could have gone very differently if the tables had been turned. I think it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if Rosalind Franklin had proposed this utterly wrong model for DNA. Would she have been so 
quickly forgiven for that and allowed to keep working on the problem. I think when you have a more sure place, when you're through whatever historical cultural conditions, when you're in a place of privilege, it's easier to make mistakes and to be risky because you're judged less for it. So Franklin went this slow, methodical route behind the scenes. And Dr. Kevin said, we're not as good at valuing that type of contribution. When a discovery happens, we tend to look for the hero who made it happen. But often, that's not really how science works. I think that a more expansive understanding of discovery enables us to better recognize how there are multiple people involved in most scientific discoveries today. So I think an expanded sense of discovery would better enable us to capture what's going on in contemporary science. Dr. Gibbons said she was thinking about this recently with another big scientific moment that has to do with making the invisible visible. This time, it wasn't something in our cells. It was something in outer space. The first image, captured in 2019, of a black hole. When that image came out, there was another picture that started circulating, too, of a 29-year-old computer scientist named Katie Bauman. And a lot of people were really excited to see a female scientist in the spotlight. So they started saying, look, this young woman made this black hole image. She is responsible for this. And that happened partially because they were aware of this history of women getting written out of scientific discoveries. Then very quickly, there was some backlash toward that. People started saying that Bauman was getting undue credit and that by celebrating her, because she's the one in this picture, her team was getting pushed aside. Bauman herself was one of the first to note that the team all made this discovery together. She posted a picture on Facebook of a big group of colleagues saying, no one person did this. It was people around the world working together over the course of many years. People couldn't figure out how to understand it in terms of discovery, partly because it doesn't fit really readily with this understanding or sense of what discovery is. You know, it's a very collaborative, collective kind of process. More and more, there's no one scientist who can walk into a bar and say that they have found the secret. So if that's what we're looking for, then we'll miss what's really there. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching... Check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.